traffic we're in the book of acts and so i'm going to turn to about chapter 13 and we'll be talking about this great first missionary journey for those of you who are at home we're very happy to have you and i appreciate so much the interest that you have in us that you would be following along and i encourage you to get your bible and uh, study with us as we go through these great uh, points of history which luke has preserved for us by inspiration we find ourselves on the first of three great missionary journeys, and as you and I have studied already, the Holy Spirit had told uh, Barnabas and Saul to depart and go into the world, go into the western portion of the ancient Near East, and there preach the gospel, and so they did. And they go from Antioch of Syria, which is just north of Jerusalem, about 100 miles or so, and then they go there to um, Salamis. Salamis is on the eastern coast of Cyprus, a little island out there in the Mediterranean. Work their way across the island of Cyprus, go to Paphos. There they come across a character by the name of Bar-Jesus or uh, Elamus. And in going there, um, they convert Sergius Paulus, who was the governor of uh, the area. And when he saw the great miracle which God did through Saul, he in turn um, saw the truth of the gospel and obeyed the gospel. They go from there on up to Pisidian Antioch, and they, uh, it would be quite a journey, really. For us, it's probably not much of a journey because of modern transportation, but for them, it would have been a difficult journey. And he's having to march up, climb up, hike up, uh, considerable altitude for his uh, day and time. And he comes to Antioch of Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than Antioch of Syria. Antioch of Syria was such a faithful congregation, so devoted to the Word of God, composed of both Jews and, and Gentiles. But Antioch of Pisidia is a different story. And so we're learning how that Paul goes to the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, and there he's preaching. Now, this is the first sermon that we have of the Apostle Paul. It is the longest sermon. It's the only sermon that we have with regard to Paul preaching in a synagogue. This sort of sets the pattern for their missionary strategy, if I may use it that way or say it that way. They will go to a city first to the synagogue, and then they will go out from that and try to convert and meet as many people as they possibly can. And so that's what they see we see them doing here, and this becomes the beginning of that method. And so he's going to go on to Iconium and other places such as that, Lystra and Perga. And as they do, you find them going into the synagogues first to try to uh, preach to the Jews. There's reasonableness behind this. That's a good reason and rationale to do that. If anybody ought to obey the gospel and accept Christ as the Messiah, it ought to be the Jews. And so you would think they would be the ones that would be most receptive to studying and hearing um, the Word of God. It seems as though, though many of them refuse to do that. It ought to be the case where they would be attuned to Old Testament prophecies, and thus when they hear about Jesus fulfilling those Old Testament prophecies, that they in turn would be ready to accept Christ as the Messiah. That would be the um, rationale behind it. It's a good idea. In fact, they were looking for the Messiah. So these people should be ready for the Messiah. Trouble of it is they didn't accept Jesus. By and large, they did not. Some did. By and large, they did not. We're going to see how that takes place here 
in our passage. I'm at about verse 26, Acts chapter 13. I'm looking at a few points here in verse 26 that I'd like to uh, talk about. And notice that he says in 26 and 27, he talks about Abraham, the promise that was given to Abraham in the long ago, Genesis chapter 12. Brethren, sons of Abraham, family, and those among you who uh, fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. That's a beautiful expression. And we sing that song sometimes, salvation has been brought down. And that is similar to what he may be saying right here. Um, This was God's purpose in the very beginning to make salvation possible both for Jew and to Gentile. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are uh, read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. So he's saying there that they'd read the prophecies and they had uh, the habit of reading the prophecies, but they rejected the Christ, even though he was fulfilled. Fulfilled these by condemning him. They condemned him. They didn't accept the Messiah. They didn't accept Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. And in so doing, and through, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And so I think it's a good point and a very precious point that is made in 28. He was not guilty. There were no grounds for putting him to death. They didn't have the authority to do it, and they didn't have the reason to do it. And so for that reason, they asked Pilate to do it, and we know the story in the gospel accounts that he did. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. And so we see he was taken down from the cross. Now the cross, let me talk a little bit about that. The cross becomes a big stumbling block to the Jews. Part of the reason why they could not accept Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah is he's crucified on a cross. And they couldn't understand that. To them, only thieves and bad guys are crucified on the cross. Deuteronomy talks about that matter in Deuteronomy chapter 21 about being executed outside on a tree. And so for that reason, they could not fathom the Messiah would be crucified on a cross. In fact, the word translated cross here is tree in the original and, but that was part of God's divine plan. Now you'll remember, and a passage comes to my mind, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. And he goes on to say in that first chapter, 1 Corinthians, To the Jews a stumbling block. Okay, what was the stumbling block with regard to the cross? That the Messiah would be crucified on the cross? That's just not within their understanding of what they thought the Messiah really ought to be like. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, verse 30. Now, the point I think that he makes here, and it's a powerful point, and that is the Jews rejected him, but God accepted him. The Jews put him on the cross, killed him, but God raised him from the dead. The Jews were rejecting the Messiah, but God accepted him. He's the one that is the Messiah, and it proves, his resurrection proves that he actually is the Messiah. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him 
from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who were now his witnesses to the people. Um, So, if I can think the rationale behind what Paul is saying here, I understand the truth of what he's saying. These witnesses saw him. But I think what he is setting forward to these Jewish people, some of them scholars, is that death on the cross did not disqualify him. Death on the cross didn't disqualify Jesus. It made him the Messiah. It made him the Messiah. He was the Messiah, proved him to be the Messiah. And even though you rejected him, God raised him from the dead. They put him in a tomb, God raised him from the dead, which qualified him to be the Messiah. He's not disqualified by dying on the cross. That qualifies him to be the Son of God. And so I think the rationale and the way he skillfully worked that into their frame of reference is pretty amazing sermon. And um, uh, the way he was able to talk about it in the fashion that he did. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers. Well, that God has fulfilled his promise to our children and that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son today I have begotten you. Well, this really shows the power of God. So we're looking at uh, Acts chapter 13. We're looking at this particular passage and he's quoting from all places the Psalms. Yes, ma'am. Right. Well, Carol raises a good point there, and that is that you can read the Bible, but if you don't reason about it properly, you're going to miss the point. And you've got to analyze it and carefully study it and look at it and compare it with other passages of the Bible, whether it be Old or New Testament. And that's part of the problem, is reasoning about the Bible. Now, you could know every word of the original Hebrew You could know every word of the original Greek. You could know everything there is to know about the background of the passages, Old Testament, New Testament. But if you don't reason about it properly, you're going to come out with the wrong conclusion. You've got to study it carefully and you've got to reason about it properly and accept the conclusions that are based on adequate evidence that is given. And so the point that I think is being read, there are a lot of people who read. But are they reading carefully? Are they reading with jaundiced eyes? Are they reading with a prejudice? How are they reading and how are they studying? If we don't reason about this properly, then we're going to fail to get the point. Now, here's a preacher in Acts chapter 13 helping them with the point. They read the prophets. He's explaining and he's applying these matters to them, as Carol brought out in in verse 27. He said, they were fulfilled in Jesus. This is how you should think about this. This is how you should see this. And though they were reading the prophets on a daily basis every Sabbath, there in turn they didn't come up with the right conclusion that God wanted them to have. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. 
So even though they had studied the Bible, and even though they were reading from the Old Testament prophets, they got the wrong conclusion. And they actually were opposed to Christ. And Christ was rejected by them. But as I was making the point, God approved of him. And him dying on the cross did not disqualify him. It qualified him to be the Messiah and the Savior of our sins. Now, another point we probably should emphasize a little more, and sometimes I, I just sort of skip over and think about it, and I think, well, we've got it, but maybe we should think a little bit more, and that's this point about the resurrection, that Jesus was very powerfully raised from the dead by the power of God, and that um, this does prove that He is the Son of God. Now, we are nothing without that resurrection. A lot of people died on Roman crosses, a lot of people. But one was raised from the dead, and that makes him different from everybody else. So if all we had was a death on a Roman cross, that wouldn't mean everything that it's supposed to mean to us. But when we see that that death on the Roman cross was raised from the dead, then of course that means everything to us, and we are nothing without it. By that I simply mean we, are, we have no Christianity without the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And as I think about it, you know, a lot of people emphasize the resurrection. They'll put, I mean, the, um, the crucifixion. They'll have a cross on the lapel or a cross around the neck, and all that's fine. Um, you know, you see cross out on the highway, cross in a church building. see a lot of crosses here and that kind of thing. But it's not only the cross, but it's the resurrected Christ that makes Christianity what it is. So without the resurrection, the cross really doesn't mean anything. But with the resurrection, the cross means everything. Yes, sir. You know, Jim, uh, maybe some of these folks that are in the mindset of some folks today where, you know, we believe the Lord can come back at any time. They have in the mindset that, well, that might be hundreds of thousands of years from now. He comes back. And not, not in my lifetime. So these folks seeing the Messiah now might say, yeah, there's a Messiah now that could be. Um, uh, in some areas, there was a fevered pitch that the Messiah is on his way. In some areas, though, it would be like, who knows when it could be in my lifetime, could be in the next lifetime. I'm sure there were people who felt that way. But multitudes are coming out to hear John preach for a reason. He's preaching, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's coming. And all these people are coming out. So in Jerusalem, Judea, there is this fervor for the Messiah is coming. Other places like Antioch of Syria, maybe not so much. Antioch of Pisidia, uh, maybe he's coming, maybe he's not. Who knows when he will come? So that could probably be, it may be one of the issues that they face there. A lack of sensitivity to the things that were happening in their own lifetime. You know, after all, David didn't realize the magnitude of his sin until the prophet walked up to him and said, Thou art the man. And once somebody pointed it out to him, then he realized, Hey, I'm guilty of terrible sin here. I need to make amends. And sometimes it's that way. Sometimes things can be right in front of us and we not see it and not experience it for what it is. And that, I think, is what Paul is saying. And These things happen. And you know that these things happen, which are telling us, about God's divine plan, which is fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I want to talk about this psalm here. I'm in verse 33, and we got a psalm, 
that comes from Psalm 2. Now, I want to say a little bit about, isn't it interesting that he quotes the Psalms? Now, Wednesday night, we're going to start a study on the Psalms. And I think we'll be surprised at the how many times um, New Testament writers quote Old Testament Psalms. So there's a lot to be learned with regard to the Psalms. And we're going to be looking at it. We're not going to take it step by step or psalm by psalm. We're going to group the psalms together, try to learn what we can about the psalms, and then see the significance of each of the ones that we study. But he quotes the psalm here as showing this is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. This is what that psalmist was talking about. David there, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so this helps me understand what's going on with regard to the life of Christ. And the significance, I think, for us is this is an Old Testament passage. This is a, from the book of Psalms, which we never study. I mean, it's an old... And you'll be surprised how many prophecies about Jesus are found in the Psalms. Another passage comes to mind, and that's Romans 1. Let's go to that. Romans chapter 1. Because Paul brings this up here as he writes this letter to the Romans. And as I was thinking about it, I think, yeah, we're looking at about verse 4 here. Who was declared the Son of God with power, how? How was He declared the Son of God with power? By the resurrection. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. This gift of God came about. Because of the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ shows the great power of God. And through obedient faith, one can receive this grace, the blessings that God has for every individual. So that helps me understand the quotation from an Old Testament passage. And now a statement from the New Testament passage, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 about the significance of the resurrection and how important it was. And that's the point Paul's making at the present. Let me go back and pick up on that. That is given to me in verse 33 of our present study, Acts chapter 13. That God has fulfilled His promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay. He has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Now, do we have another quotation? Yes, we do. He's quoting from Isaiah. That is the point that I, I keep emphasizing and telling people about. And I have the opportunity to teach some young men, and I keep emphasizing this to them. How do you prove a point? How do you prove it? Just because you say it, somebody uses a heartwarming illustration. How do you prove a point? How do you make it a fact? 
Well, one of the ways you do that is by Scripture quotation. The Scripture teaches this. So this guy's filling his sermon with Scripture. You got a Scripture from Isaiah 55. In verse 35, therefore, he also says, in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Psalm 16 and verse 10. Well, let's stop and think about that. Why would Paul use that Scripture in Psalm 16 and verse 10? I'm kind of unpacking what Paul has done here in this sermon at Antioch of Pisidia. And how could that be possible? You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Verse 35. How could that be possible? In fact, what's the only way that could be possible? Resurrection. The only way that can be done is by means of a resurrection from the dead. Sir. Why, he said that several times, didn't he? And so it's very clear. The interesting thing about this, I think, David is prophesying (laughs) hundreds of years before the event. And now they're hearing the application of that prophecy. This is what he was talking about, Paul said. Now, how do I know if I just had this psalm, whether it be Psalm 16 or Psalm 2, how would I know what these things mean? I wouldn't. But what difference does that make? The Bible tells me what they mean. The Bible is telling me, it's interpreting for me, it's explaining to me what Psalm 2 is referring to, what Psalm 1610 is referring to. The only way he would not decay is if he were raised from the dead. Peter makes the same point in Acts chapter 2. Yes, sir. No. Uh, you ask a good question. Rich asked the question about, you know, when you read about the Jews of the first century and they think about the Messiah, they're thinking about a military Messiah. A Messiah is going to come and uh, free them from the tyranny of Rome. And that is true. That is true. But his question is why? Why did they think that? Where did they get that idea? Well, this was the idea of the uh, Pharisees, Sadducees, the scholars of the day. This is how they interpreted these particular matters and taught the people that. And you have a group of Jews called zealots. Zealots who really want that. They're out there propagating the idea, let's defeat Rome. The problem with that is you can't do it. That's been tried before, and you're not going to be able to defeat Rome. Rome is in high swing right now, first century. Continues to go into the second and third century. Rome's in high swing right now, and there's no way a handful of Jewish zealots are going to be able to overthrow Rome. But that was their inclination and their interest and desire. Let's get out from underneath them and let's have, have it like it was in the days of David and Solomon. And that's what they wanted. So I would say the religious leaders are the pro- probably the propagators of that. Certain facets of the Jewish people were propagating that idea. Let's have a military Messiah. Though, as Rich pointed out, the Old Testament prophets did not teach that. Did not teach that. Even the apostles 
had that idea in their mind. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is ascending, ready to ascend. And I said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? And he says, he understands, they just don't get it yet completely. By Acts chapter 2, they get it. They understand it. Yes, ma'am. He's saying there was no decay. I would say that's right. He would not allow his Holy One to deteriorate, to decay. Peter makes that very same point in Acts chapter 2. Will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. He did not. And I would say it, it would be from that perspective. Right, that's a good question. Somebody else. That is true. All of that is true. We wouldn't have a high priest, would we? Yes, sir. Going back to Sister Carol's comment earlier about reading and understanding. Yes, sir. I have never seen it verified, but I've read where Nikita Khrushchev, the former Russian leader, had memorized the book of Acts. Really? But it never said one word about him ever obeying the gospel. Yeah. You know, that's a good point there because I don't know if that's true. I guess it is. I don't know. Yeah, you raise a good point. Many, many Russian people are very religious. It is a Greek Orthodox religion that they have there. I have even seen where, um, what's this guy's name? Putin was baptized in the Greek Orthodox Church. There are many um, religious uh, Russian people, even during the days of communism. They were very religious, and the Greek Orthodox Church is very strong there. And so maybe he did memorize the book of Acts. That would be a pretty amazing thing. And um, I would not be surprised um, if he did that, because there are many very religious people in Russia, Ukraine. The church was growing. The church of the Lord is a growing concern in Ukraine now. It's not now because of the war. They have had to leave and to go to other countries for freedom and safety. But the Church of the Lord was a growing concern in Ukraine at the present, before the war, of course. And hopefully there will be, after this terrible thing is over, opportunities for more preaching and teaching uh, once this terrible situation is ended. And pray that it ends soon. But um, uh, they are very religious people. The Greek Orthodox Church is very, um, very strong in Ukraine, Moldova, and those uh, places like that. There are a lot of Eastern European countries whereby the, the, they are very religious. Now, it's a denomination. It's a high church type denomination, Greek Orthodox. And at any rate, they're very religious. So maybe he did. Maybe he did that. Hmm. Hmm. And they were Greek Orthodox. Okay, they were Greek Orthodox. Very, very prominent. Religious very religious people. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Well, the, the um, work of the Lord continues to go on. I hope and pray that's true and that they will continue to grow. And I was thinking after the Second World War how the church grew because that terrible thing was over and now people are more receptive and people were obeying the gospel. Maybe that will happen at the conclusion of this uh, conflict. I hope it does. I hope it does. Now I'm in Acts chapter 13 and I'm looking, I'm wrestling with this point about the resurrection and I see a big word there in verse 36 for David after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent what? Decay. David deteriorated. David is prophesying not about himself, he's prophesying about somebody else. The somebody else that David is prophesying about in Psalm 2 and probably 16 is Jesus of Nazareth. It's a pointed sermon and it's getting right at the heart of the issue. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, uh, let's see, 37, but he whom God raised did not undergo decay. You see, this qualifies him. He's a qualified, he's the Savior, he's the Messiah. He proves himself to be the Messiah. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. What a great verse, verse 38. And you know what that is? Application. 38 is the application. What does this mean for us now? It means forgiveness of sin is now being preached, and you can receive forgiveness of sin. That's what it means. Now, that word forgiveness is a great word. We throw that around a lot. Forgiveness is implying my responsibility to do what God has said, my responsibility to accept the terms of pardon. That's inherent in that word, forgiveness. Sometimes you'll see the word redemption. Inherent in that word is the idea, I'm helpless in this matter of saving myself. I couldn't save myself. I'm like the slave on the auction block and a bidder bids and, I, and he wins the bid. Now I'm his slave, but he set me free. I didn't have anything to do with that. Redemption. But then the corollary to that, forgiveness. Forgiveness is saying, you got something you got to do. There's an aspect about this matter that's God's side. There's an aspect about this matter that is my side, and I've got to fulfill my responsibility and accept this forgiveness. And that's what he's emphasizing here uh, in our verse 38. And let me read 39. <clears throat> and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed <laughs> through the law of Moses. This is pointed. This is pointed. I wonder why he throws that in there. What is he saying there about being freed through the law of Moses? You can't do it. Sir? Yeah. You can't be saved through the law of Moses. Nobody could be. What was the purpose of the law of Moses then? To bring us to Christ, Galatians chapter 3. It was the school teacher. It was the original word there, propedeutic. He was, Galatians chapter 3. He's the guy, you see, the kids go to school. The slave that we've got 
will take the kids to school. Our slave will take them to school. And while he's taking them to school, he will teach them little lessons along the way. Once they get to school, they get to the real school teacher. And Paul uses that word in Galatians chapter 3 to say, the real school teacher has come. It is Jesus Christ. We no longer need the slave that's going to carry us by the hand to the school teacher. We got the real school teacher now. And we're no longer under that Old Testament law. And so he says in this passage, and I'm paraphrasing for you, Galatians chapter 3, and through him everyone, now that word right there, 39, everyone. I'm sure there were Jews at Pisidian Antioch didn't like that idea. Who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So early, this is so early, and Paul's got that point. He understands that, that the law of Moses cannot redeem the law of Mo- because everybody's violated the law of Moses. You can't be saved by means of it. Everybody has sinned against the law of Moses. Therefore, take heed so that the thing spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Behold, you scoffers and, mar- and marvel and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should <laughs> describe it to you. This, these are great sermons. These are great, great sermons when you analyze the rationale behind what the man is saying. I get excited about a good sermon, but it's got to be a good sermon. Uh, and this is one of the great sermons of the Bible. Now, what does this passage mean, and where did it come from? Habakkuk. Well, my Hebrew teacher would say Habakkuk, but I don't say Habakkuk because nobody would know what in the world I'm talking about. We understand it as Habakkuk. Habakkuk 1, verse 5. Now, what is Habakkuk, the prophet, talking about? We never study Habakkuk. Let me explain it. Habakkuk has a problem. How can God take these pagan Babylonians and punish his people? How can he do that? Habakkuk is wrestling with that problem. How is it that God could take these pagans and overcome and destroy his temple? How is that? And Habakkuk, by inspiration, he says, now God's going to do an amazing thing. So Habakkuk is talking about what in Habakkuk 1.5? The Babylonians coming and destroying the people of Israel, Judah. For I am accomplishing a work in your days. Whose days? The days of Israel. A work which you will never believe. Though someone should describe it to you. You're not going to understand this. You're not, you're not going to get it. And Habakkuk draws the conclusion. It's because of our sin that God is disciplining us in this particular way. Now I've got this verse in the New Testament. And Paul brings this New Test- Old Testament passage into the New. And I'm wondering how is he using that here? I told you how Habakkuk used it. How, is he using, how does Paul use this particular passage? Today, God is doing an amazing thing, and it's through Jesus Christ. So let me read it again. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, 
though someone should describe it to you. And his point is, God's doing that now through Christ, bringing salvation to everyone, everyone, to the Jews and also to the Greeks. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now that's kind of amazing to me. How that the crowd would say, please preach to us again. Please preach to us again. You know, preach this again. Now, if a preacher preaches the same sermon twice, it doesn't go over very well. Um, It's like the old preacher story where the preacher kept preaching on baptism every Sunday. Every Sunday was a sermon on baptism. And the elders said, we've got to do something about this. Every sermon's on baptism, the same subject over and over and over again. What can we do? Said, let's suggest some topics for him to preach. I said, well, that's a good idea. We can, they can make some suggestions. So one of the suggestions that they made to him was preach on the creation. And so he decided, I'll preach on the creation. So the next Sunday he said, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the dry land and he created the seas. And that brings me down to my subject of baptism once again. And so if you are that focused on over and over and over again, of course, it becomes tedious. But now this crowd in verse 42 is a preacher's delight. Please tell us more about this. In fact, the people kept begging that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews... And of the God-fearing proselytes, we talked about them, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, were urging them to continue in the grace of God. Who? Who's to continue in the grace of God? Stay open-minded and have an open heart to the teaching of the Word of God. Stay open-minded. Have an open heart to that. Did they? Some of them did. Some of them do not. And we'll study about the do-nots and the dids beginning in verse 44 through 52. And it's a pretty serious matter that goes on here now. And we'll see how that Satan cannot allow the success of the church to go unchallenged. And so he brings about a persecution at Pisidian Antioch. But we'll have to study about that next time. All right, a comment, a question. One bell is wrong. Yes, sir. Anytime you have a bunch of rules and they're easily understood, anything that goes against them has to uh, not be looking for the truth. If you see what I mean. Yeah. They're yeah. not looking for the truth. Yeah. Uh, they're they're looking for a loophole is what they're looking for. Some way around, do an end run around the rules. Yeah. And the Bible wraps that up, you know. Yeah. Don't waste your time on something other than the Bible. And back then they had the law. Right. And they haven't got any of these writings yet of the new law. Yeah, we're into the new law. We're into the new law. It's not written down yet completely, only partly. And so it's early, it's early. The, 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 
the once for all delivered unto the saints hasn't been delivered quite yet. It's coming, but it hadn't quite been put down yet. What, how did they know? God the Holy Spirit is performing miracles, and they're laying hands on these people. They become inspired teachers, inspired prophets while the churches are established, and that's how they learn the law at this point in time. Later, that'll be done away with, and the Scriptures will be completed, and they'll be going to it just like we are today. Yeah. Now they've got that. They don't want to. They want to see it their way. Now they're not. We're not immune to that. We've got to be careful not to want to see it our way. We've got to look at it objectively and as honestly as we possibly can. And the only safeguard we've got on that is to keep studying and keep comparing and keep looking. Otherwise, you see, I don't want to look, through, look at the Bible through rose-colored glasses here. I want to see it God's way, not my way. And so the Jews, they were that way. They were looking at it their way rather than God's way. But now they got a guy coming in there telling them that. God sent the man there to say, look, this is how you need to see it. But many of them rejected that. Somebody else. Yes, sir. Don't you feel sorry for what Moses went through? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, mercy sake. What a great man he was. Yeah. Yeah. What a great man Moses was. He really was. He had all the responsibility of everyone. Yeah. Until he was tired and he told God, he says, I need some help. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And so Moses is such a great leader, such a great leader of God. A meek, humble man, but yet a man of conviction and determination. Oh, he was a great, great leader for God's people. Well, I'll have to bring it to a close. Uh, about verse 44 is where we'll begin next Sunday morning. We will look at the results of this sermon. Now, the, the thumbnail sketch of this is going to be they go back to Presidian Antioch to speak the next Sabbath day, and we've got a big trouble because everybody's coming to see what's going on. Everybody's out there wanting to hear about this and they are envious and jealous of that particular matter. And for that reason, the Jews caused persecution, causing Paul and Barnabas to say, we're going to the Gentiles. If you've decided yourself unworthy for eternal life, we will go to the Gentiles and preach to them. All right.